began with Hebrews chapter 1, and we established uh, seven characteristics of who Christ is. I have, there's no way I can go through all of that again tonight because I need to move forward. In fact, last week I only covered about three or four verses. And so tonight I'm going to spend about 10 minutes in finishing Hebrews chapter 1 and then moving and hoping, praying to finish Hebrews chapter 2 tonight. Amen. <laughs> Praise God. I, I think this is very, this is very, uh, I almost want to say a Kairos moment for us to be going through this study. Because as you guys know, this week, Christians all over the world celebrate uh, the Passion Week, uh, which culminates on Sunday as to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, these whole studies can almost be seen in that context. Because here, the Bible is trying to establish to us how supreme, the superiority of who Jesus is. This explains to you and I why God could not have sent an angel to die for our sins. This explains to us why Moses, as good and as great as he was, as a mediator of the old covenant, could not have remedied the sin problem for mankind. It took God coming in the flesh himself to do what he did so that you and I can be, uh, can be found justified and we can be saved, we can be born again. Okay, so having said that, I really wish that you guys would pay attention and uh, take your notes and especially those seven characteristics of who Christ is. I can't go through all of them again tonight. It's just too many of them and I need to try to finish. Uh, but the writer, the writer goes on to establish that and then in verse 4 of Hebrews chapter 1, it begins to tell us, having become so much better than angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So first of all, it tells us who Jesus is. The inheritor, the sustainer, the creator, uh, the one that's purged our sins, the one who sits and rules, and on and on and on. So first of all, he introduced to us who this Christ is. Then he begins to tell us, now don't, come, don't make a mistake to compare this Jesus with angels. Now if you were here last week, you remember and you recall the audience to whom this writer is writing. And most people believe Paul wrote this. You have to remember, you have to keep that in context. Who is he writing to? He's writing to Jewish believers who years previously were deeply entrenched in the old covenant system. They didn't read about it like you and I. They went through it. They killed the animals. They did all the purifications, all the ceremonial laws. They were part and parcel of all of this. So now, for those guys, they understood how the law came. And the Bible talks in Acts chapter 7, verse 53, Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, the role of angels in bringing the law. Not to say the law was given through angels or by angels, but they participated in the whole process. So for the Jews, angels were huge. They were esteemed very, very highly. So first the author describes to us who Jesus was, or Jesus is. Then next, it begins to debunk for them this notion of esteeming angels more than they ought to. So in verse 4, that's why it says to them, having become so much better than angels. In other words, don't make the mistake to compare Jesus 
with angels is much better as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. The Bible talks in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, that God has given him a name that is above every name. Angels were not given such estimation. Not at all. But that's not enough. Now, it begins to now go through different reasons for which they should not esteem angels higher. In verse 5, for to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? No, there's no angel that has the privilege of God calling them his son. Amen? And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But, when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Again, trying to establish clearly the supremacy of who Christ is. At no time did God ever call an angel a son. At no time did God ever say to an angel, I'm your father. Not only that, God actually commanded the angels to worship him. Amen? Now, just for the sake of uh, mentioning, uh, in that verse 6, when he calls Jesus the firstborn, please don't misunderstand that with me. Uh, he was the firstborn and you were, you were the secondborn and then there was a thirdborn. <laughs> uh, now, because if you, ever, if you ever sit down with the Jehovah's Witness, uh, they, they, they are big on this. They quickly go here and tell you Jesus was a firstborn and therefore he was not God. So you need to understand what this firstborn concept is all about. In Jeremiah, when God was telling us about the sons of Joseph, the Bible said clearly, I believe Jeremiah chapter 31, the Bible tells us clearly that Ephraim was the firstborn of Joseph. Well, naturally, physically so, that is not correct. That is not true. That is not so. Manasseh was the firstborn, but the term firstborn here, it has reference to do with prominence. Not chronology. Among the redeemed, among the born again, among the, uh, the, the ad- adopted sons of God, among all of us that are newborn in creation, Jesus is firstborn. In other words, he, held, he holds the position of preeminence. It's number one. So this, this is not saying that somebody gave birth to him and in chronology uh, is the first created one and second created one and thought the Jehovah's Witness wants you to know that to say that but that is not true you need to understand what that is saying okay let's just move on verse 7 Hebrews 1 and of the angels he says who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire but to the son he says your throne O God is forever and ever did you, did you catch that? Yes. To the son, it says, your throne, O God. Yes. So God is speaking to who? To God. There you go. You got it. God is speaking to God. Clearly affirming that even God said to Jesus, you are God. Yes. So it's not just a created being. It's not, just, it's not an angel. It's not the brother of Michael, as the Mormons say he is. God said to God, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, 
has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, now this is God speaking to him. You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will, grow, they will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, you will fold them up and they will be changed. But you are the same and your years will not fail. Oh, hallelujah. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? And then he concludes in verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Clearly here, clearly no one here should ever worship angels. In fact, God is making it clear that we understand the place and the role of angels. We should not get into angelology and take their studies deeply. Why? They are just what? Ministering spirits. They're servants. They take instructions and carry errands. That's their role. That's all they do. So we need to be very, very careful not to become enamored to the point where we begin to esteem angels rather than God. So Hebrews chapter 1 clearly first describes to us who Jesus is and then goes on to make a clear contrast and distinction from Jesus and the angels and clearly showing us how far more superior Jesus is to the angels. Is that clear for everybody? Good. All right, so now we can proceed to uh, chapter 2 of Hebrews. Chapter 2. Therefore, therefore what? As a result of chapter 1, as a result of who Jesus is, and how much more superior he is to angels who participated in giving the law, therefore now, he goes on to say, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. Wow. Well, let me read a couple of more verses. Verse 2. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which are the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. So let's go back to verse 2 and just break that down for a minute. So the Bible is saying to us here, we must give the most earnest heed. It didn't just say give heed. It said the more earnest heed. Now, in order for you to understand what they saying here, I need to read a couple of scriptures. First one in Proverbs chapter 12. Proverbs 12. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 15. Look at what it says. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. But he who heeds counsel is wise. Now, follow these verses, and now we're going we, we, to be able to define what this word is trying to say to us. 
Okay, so we know that he who heeds counsel is wise. Uh, again, in Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. In verse 14. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Tyre, who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. All right. So here the word heed from the passages we just read gives us the understanding of the intent of the way the word is used. When you heed a message or you heed a word, it's not just merely hearing it. Heeding or heeding or taking heed is normally usually followed with some kind of action. There is no way to take heed and you do nothing. There is no way to take heed and there are no changes. There is no way to take heed and there are no corresponding action to that which you have taken heed of. If you look at that first passage we read in Proverbs 15, the Bible says, see, that takes heed to wise counsel. Let me, let me read that again. What, what does it say? He that takes heed, 1215, 12, he who heeds counsel is wise. So if you're heeding counsel, what does that mean? If somebody came to me for counseling and I gave them a, a word or a counsel, for them to heed it means they left me doing something different from what they would have done. Yes. Does that make sense? Yes. That's what the Bible says. And then in Acts 16, concerning Lydia, she heard the gospel message that Paul preached to her. She, she was not a forgetful hearer, hearing the message and just walking away. As a result of the message, she persuaded the apostles, ah, don't carry this glory away. Just bring this package to my house. Don't just take this and just go. Please follow me. Come to my home. Come and stay in my house for a while. So heeding means you not only just hear, but you take corresponding action. Most times to make some changes or to do something we will otherwise not do. So here the opening passage of chapter 2 says, therefore, we must Give the more earnest heed to the things we've heard. Lest we drift away. Ah, this is another very important concept. So not taking heed. What, does, what happens? We drift away. Now, for those of you that have taken ocean cruises, and I'm looking at you guys here, many of you have. I'm looking at all of them. One, two, three, four. Yeah, okay, I won't name you, but I'm seeing your faces. I'm seeing Norwegian written on your foreheads, Royal Caribbean written on your foreheads, and Carnival cruises on your foreheads. <laughs> Praise God. Hallelujah. Amen. You will notice that when your ship gets to shore, 
It's never good enough that he has arrived at shore, whether it's Miami or Fort Lauderdale or Bahamas, whatever it is. This captain will normally take extra precaution and anchor the ship, even though it had arrived at its destination. They will never take any chances to say, we've docked, we're right side by the dock, and we're just going to leave the ship. Why would they not do that? Because they understand something that the Bible is trying to tell us. Not taking action to anchor what you believe will cause you to drift. Now, this is the thing about drifting. Again, when you look out on the, uh, in, 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 in these shores and you look at these boats, when a boat is drifting, it never does it in a hurry. Never. You might not even know that it's doing so. Just up and down. Up and down. In one hour, it's moving about one foot. Up and down. Up and down. In another one hour, maybe about three feet. Little by little by little. So the message here from this apostle to us is, listen, what you are hearing, if you don't believe God for the grace to begin to make adjustments, you will be like a sheep who is at shore. You've arrived at your destination. Yes, you arrived. You are looking at the home. Say, hey, we are in Miami. Hallelujah. We are in the Bahamas. We have gotten here. I can't wait to get out. You arrived, all right. But because you are not anchored, there's no conviction. There is nothing that, that's anchoring you to where you are. What's going to happen is, little by little by little, you begin to drift away. There's a story about a, an ungodly farmer who had a will. And when he died, you will not believe what this farmer did. He willed his estate and his farm, well, in particular his farm, to the devil. Written in a will. So it's time now to execute the will. They brought the will to the judge. Ah. Just said, what, what, what are we going to do? I mean, how are we going to physically give this property, this farm, to the devil? Very perplexing problem. I don't know if there's any counselor here that can counsel the judge, but <laughs> he already judged the case. So the farmer said, okay. And the, the, rather, the judge said, all right, in, in, since we don't have a devil that we can physically give this farm to, this is what we're going to do. Just let the farm lay fallow. Do nothing with it. In time, weeds will grow up. After a while, the erosion of the soil takes place. After a while, the barn houses grows all kinds of bush in it. And for, after a, a long time, the whole place became totally desolate. That's the idea that drifting brings to mind. In action, we hear the word, and hear the word, and hear the word, and hear the word. Yes, you are born again. Now remember, this message is not to unbelievers. This message is to believers. 
They are justified. So the issue is not, and I'm going to get to that in a minute. The issue is not whether they are born again or not. They are born again. But even for born again people who do not do anything about their salvation, Paul talks about working out your salvation with fear and trembling. You drift. You drift. You are looking at your destination. But because there's no anchor, because there's nothing done to secure your position. And now we're not talking about securing your salvation here. That's not what I'm talking about. That's already secured in Christ Jesus. There's nothing that's 